Can you believe it's going to be 60 degrees on Saturday? Stop gloating. Climate change is not a good thing. I like the heat, Laura, and it's time to bring some to the listeners, so let's get started. Welcome back to This Week in the CLE, the podcast where the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com chew on the news of Northeast Ohio. 2020 is destined to be a newsy year, and we plan to be here week in, week out, going behind the news to discuss what is driving this region. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with co-host Laura Johnston. Happy New Year, Laura. Happy New Year, though I know better than to welcome you to a new decade. We've had some special episodes in recent weeks, reviews of the news of the past 10 years, and we hope you enjoyed them. Now it's time to get back to our core. And one thing that a lot of people are talking about of late is about how warm we have been this winter. People were strolling in shirt sleeves the day after Christmas. As we said, the temperature is supposed to be 60 on Saturday. As someone who has suffered through a lot of very snowy and cold Cleveland winters, I'm loving this. Every day we forestall the Arctic cold and big dumps of snow, shorten the worst of the Cleveland weather year. So instead, we're going to get heavy rain and possibly severe weather. Cleveland's had nine inches of snow this year. That's 13 inches less than normal. And so far, January is 10 degrees above normal. We live in Cleveland where it is supposed to snow and the lake is supposed to freeze. Winters overall everywhere are warming faster than summers. And that means more pollen and more pests like ticks since temperatures don't drop below freezing as often to kill them off. And if we have a warmer lake, we may have worse harmful algal blooms. All right. I get it. We all agree (laughs) climate change is really bad for the earth and people should stop causing it. But let's face it, most people in these parts get pretty weary of March or by March of each year, donning all the extra clothes and scarves and hats and gloves, driving on terrible roads under really gray skies. All I'm saying is that a lot of people are enjoying this delayed start. It's a good reason. It's not a good reason to keep burning coal, obviously. But look on the bright side of light here. <laughs> Listen, I'm sick of the cold by March, too. But who's to say we won't end up with snow in May again, like we did in 2016? According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Lake Erie is still supposed to end up at 80% ice this year. So let's get started on that. Life would feel a lot brighter if the world were coated in shiny ice and gleaming white snow. And we all got to go outside and play in it and ski in it, of course. You know... Given all of your protestations about the need for cold weather, I do want to point out that of the two of us, you're the one heading to Florida in a couple of weeks. So when you talk about skiing, what you're really talking about is water skiing. And remember, I lived in Florida. There are alligators in the water. I do believe that is the first time you have shoehorned an alligator reference into this podcast. Yes, we are taking our kids to Disney World for a week in February and flip-flops are going to feel particularly freeing after ski boots. All right. I think we've raised the heat appropriately in our little podcast studio. Let's bring in Corey Schaefer. Welcome to the podcast, Corey Schaefer. You are our first guest of 2020. It is an incredible honor. <laughs> okay. All right, Mr. Honor. You did a couple of stories here recently to th- that together, I think, paint a pretty frightening picture about youth in the region. One was about a whopping big increase in the percentage of homicide victims who are youths. And the other was about the whopping big number of youths who are being charged as adults for violent crime. All in all, the world seems to be getting pretty violent for kids around here. So let's start with the homicide victims. What did you find there? Uh, Yeah, so Evan McDonald and I kind of compiled some numbers and that found out that the number of kids under the age of 18 
killed last year increased from uh, seven in 2018 to 10 in 2019. So that's, you know, 30%. Um, and even if you spread it out, you know, you can consider young people. So under the age of 25, uh, it w- went even higher there. I think there were 40, 40 homicide victims under the age of 25 when, uh, you know, the year before it was in the 20s. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's becoming... That's big. That's a big jump. I mean, yeah. That, that change is pretty, pretty big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of these deaths are tragic, obviously, but from... Last some from last year make you gasp. We had the six-year-old shot in the head while asleep at home. In late December, we had the East Cleveland Elementary student killed by the teen carjacker who had stolen a car at gunpoint and then fled from police. Did you see any patterns in the deaths of children? Were they mostly in specific neighborhoods or killed by random gunfire? Are there any lessons here? I was kind of all over the map as far as trends go. Um, you know, so there were there two two of the victims were. Uh, killed by smoke inhalation from a fire that was an arson. Um, And there was, like you said, the girl that was asleep on her mattress in the living room at, during a slumber party. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and from uh, what prosecutors have said, that seems like that was the gunfire was intended for someone who was an older person that was connected to the house. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was one where they just sprayed bullets all over the front. Yeah. There were like more than 20, 20 rounds fired from a rifle. Um, It's not unheard of to see this kind of thing. I mean, I I remember back in 2015, you know, we had three kids. It seemed like in a span of six or seven weeks, uh, first there was a five-year-old boy that was shot and killed. And then there was a three-year-old boy that was shot and killed. And then there was a six-month-old girl that was killed in the back of a car seat, and it just seemed like each time, you know, the victim got younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it, it's been something that's been, uh, you know, a, an issue with with when you when you have these drive-by shootings, you don't know where the bullets are going to go. You don't know who's in the car. You know, more than one person drives the type of car you might be looking for if you're going to retaliate against somebody. Um, you know, you don't know who's in the house if you're going to try to shoot somebody up. So, you know, if, if you're going to be the type of person that does that, there's going to be a risk that you're going to hit someone that's that 100% not involved with what you, with what you're trying to, you know, accomplish so in as, some weird way. As with the East Cleveland chase, some of these kids were killed by other kids. We seem to be in the midst of a rash of violence by teenagers Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael Malley took office three years ago talking specifically about the the violence by teenagers. He said he was going to focus on reducing that. You had a story recently that had some criticism, O'Malley, for his tactics. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the ACLU of Ohio uh, compiled some statistics and uh, found that more juveniles are being bound over and have been bound over from juvenile court to adult court, um, which carries, you know, oftentimes stiffer penalties and it labels them lifelong uh, criminals. Then under O'Malley, since he took office in 2017, then, you know, five or six years before that with the end of Bill Mason's term and then um, Prosecutor McGinty, who was directly before O'Malley. And the ACLU is taking the stance that, you know, we have a juvenile court for a reason. There's a separate juvenile system to keep kids rather than to focus on punishing them like the adult court often does to rehabilitate them and try to keep them from becoming, you know, lifelong, lifelong criminals, essentially yeah. from, from recidivism, recidivism, recidivism. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, 
so their their you know their their stance is that that is the system that is proper for juveniles to be treated in. Um, you know, they're they're not saying that there's never any instances where a kid should should not be bound over. Um, but O'Malley isn't conceding anything here, right? He's defending his charging of youth as adults. He says there's a reason for that. Correct. Yeah. So he's basically saying, you know, he can't control the kids, like the cases that get that get brought to him. So mm-hmm. there are cases where, um, you know, and he's laid this out where there's kids who, you know, start getting arrested at 12 and 13 on minor crimes and then they get put on probation in juvenile court and then they violate the probation and then they commit more serious crimes. You know, they get caught in a stolen car or they get, you know, caught trying to, you know, take something from somebody and then they go through the process of juvenile court and probation again and then they violate again and then they get arrested with an aggravated robbery and so you've got someone who's been through you know multiple steps in the system that the system has not rehabilitated them the way that it's supposed to and then they get arrested when they're 16 or 17 in connection with an aggravated robbery or a murder or something like that and by that time you know the law around binding kids over is basically you know if you're 16 or 17 and you commit a crime with a gun or you commit a violent felony uh, and you have prior interactions with the juvenile court, it's mandatory that you be bound over and charged as an adult. The the idea that that the ACL uses that says that juvenile court was designed to allow kids to make mistakes that wouldn't haunt them for the rest of their lives and 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 change their ways. Um, the, the juvenile court goes back now what 115 years in Cuyahoga County, when it was created, and for most of the decades after we did not have the kind of crime we're seeing by juveniles today. I mean, the, the, the idea of a 15-year-old walking up to a woman in the Target parking lot with a gun and carjacking the car and doing what happened that day, that, you know, that's, a, that's a newer thing, the spraying of houses with bullets. Um, one thing O'Malley keeps saying is that the ACL, ACLU should identify cases where charging the youths as adults is wrong. His point seems to be that, yeah, okay, criticize my numbers. Yeah, it's a trend. I'm doing what I said I was going to do. But which of the cases that I've charged as adults are egregious, where where the kids shouldn't be treated as adult? They really haven't come back to you with one that crystallizes what they're saying, right? There's not There's not some kid that... You they know, don't have like a poster child for this. A shoplifter who's been, you know, did something that, that qualified. The people that have been treated as adults have largely been accused of pretty horrible things, right? Uh, yeah, for the most part. And, and I, I haven't heard. Um, there, there's been no, I think, um, identification of any individual cases. And I don't know that the ACLU would be um, interested in, in trying to, like, research e- each individual case uh, to try to find something like that. I, I think they're— But don't they have a duty to do that? If you're going to lodge this criticism— and get the spotlight on the prosecutor. Shouldn't you do the research on the cases so that you can say, you know, we looked at you know, whatever it is, 100 cases, and in 30 of the cases it involved homicides with multiple victims, and in 20 of the cases it involved a gun, but but in 20 of the cases it really was more of a strong arm robbery where they use their fists, and we would think that those are ones that you might be able to rehabilitate. I mean, don't they have a duty to do that instead of just kind of throwing the flame up and saying we think it's too many? Uh, I don't know that they have a, a duty to do it, but I, I think that it would certainly make the case that they're trying to make uh, a lot stronger if they could point to individual 
kids. So the thing is, this seems to be more of a principle for the ACLU, that they're saying, yes, they are horrible cases of violence, but these are still children who are involved, and we should treat them as children no matter what by giving them the extra chance. Yeah, I th- it is. It's more of a philosophical ethos of, of treating kids as kids and giving them the benefit of the doubt when when they when, when it's possible. And mm-hmm. I think I alluded to this earlier. They they admit that there are definitely times when kids need to be treated as adults and that there's the crime that they commit then outweighs the the chance to rehabilitate um to rehabilitate in certain cases, but um you know, it is I think they're they're pointing more towards, um, you know, there's there's two sets of bindovers. There's a mandatory bindover, which I alluded to earlier, and then there's discretionary bindover where, you know, the kid might be a little bit younger. It's not mandatory that they be charged as adults, but the prosecutor still files a uh, paperwork to uh, trigger a hearing where a the juvenile court judge then ultimately has the final decision of whether to bind them over or not, uh, and they basically just have to find that you know, there are check a couple boxes as far as, you know, the, the crime that was committed, like would have been a bind over if the kid mm-hmm. would have been 16. Um, and that the juvenile system, the, the, the juvenile has shown that he's not, he or she is not amenable to the juvenile system well, anymore. Let me, let me, and let me stop you on that. that. I mean, could I make an argument that, that the real failure here on O'Malley's part and on the part of others is in the juvenile system. I mean, O'Malley is saying these are kids that have been been in the juvenile system multiple times. They start with a minor crime and it escalates. O'Malley's office prosecutes children in juvenile court, so they have a role in trying to rehabilitate those kids. And the whole purpose of the juvenile court is to rehabilitate those kids. If that's not happening, is that where we the the, the ACLU should be focused attention that this is this is more a failure in the early part of the juvenile system than it is in the bindover part that if if O'Malley and the juvenile court were doing their job in the first place the kids wouldn't escalate and should should the focus be on what what is going wrong in juvenile court where the kids don't get any benefit yeah and that's something that I was planning to start looking into um, what what the juve- it seems like the juvenile court and the system that we have in place that we've had in place for 15 years isn't equipped to deal with the issues that are going on in today's society like you know this whole discussion not only are kids being victimized by gun violence at younger and younger and younger ages they're committing gun violence at younger and younger ages. and But it starts out with a minor crime. I mean, it, 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 the pattern is there. It starts out with a shoplifting. It starts out with, with some bullying. So why why isn't that the trigger? Instead of, forget the bind over, by then you're, you're way down the road. Why aren't they being more effective in targeting the kid saying, look, this is a kid, red flag, let's really work on that. Right, and that I mean, that's the question. There's uh, I went to a... a sentencing in Nancy Margaret Russo's courtroom. Uh, I think it was at the beginning of last year or maybe the end of 2018. And she even said it was, it was a bind over case where this, uh, I don't remember the exact crime, but it was, you know, a string of multiple, I think aggravated robberies. And the, the kid had been, you know, through the system multiple times and had escalated, and she also, I mean, she said back then that it seems like the system was essentially giving people slaps on the wrist. You come in, they say, you know, you did something wrong and then let you go. And there's no effort 
To rehabilitate. To mm-hmm. rehabilitate and make sure that they're getting, you know, every single service that they need because a lot of times, you know, it's it's not often, it's not always the case, but oftentimes there are huge voids in these kids' lives of resources that they need just to, you know, have a decent meal, yeah. uh, get well, a good it's education. Not, it's not like the juvenile detention center has been without problems in the but, past. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so, you know, holistically, the way that the system has been treating these kids is basically, you know, I think a lot of people could say it's almost setting a lot of them up for failure. And then mm-hmm. we're failing the kids. Ultimately, this is, yeah. where you end up. a much bigger problem with right. the juvenile Where you courts. end up when that happens is in adult court. So the ACLU is really, you could argue, criticizing the symptom and not the real root of this problem, which is getting to these kids before they get to the point where you're deciding on bind overs. It'd be interesting to see if they're doing it better in any other city. We opened the door on this one, so let's go through. You had a piece, Corey, tied to the police chase that ended with a 15-year-old carjacker hitting and killing a 13-year-old girl in East Cleveland. You brought perspective to it all by looking at the Cleveland chase policy and how it came to be. My takeaway from what you reported was that police in this case largely followed the policy. Uh, yeah, and, and again, I think this is still under investigation, so there are some details that that we don't know yet. But the policy, uh, you know, throughout the years has they they've reined back individual officers' ability to chase. They have to get permission from a supervisor, and this is obviously after the you know the the mess of 2012, where the two people 137 137 shots, shots two people unarmed got shot after you know 60 some cars participated in some wild cross city chase in East Cleveland. In East Cleveland. Just started in East, started in road. Cleveland, yeah. ended yeah. Um, and, and so you know the idea behind that was, and the, the whole idea behind a police chase is that you have someone that needs to be taken off the street because they're a danger. So. Chase if they if they don't stop chasing them and going you know 100 miles an hour through residential neighborhoods heightens the danger to the community. So the the whole policy is to have like a supervisor and not the officer that's involved on the street and has their adrenaline pumping and all that stuff. Have someone removed from it decide when the need to get them off the street is outweighed by the danger that a chase would cause. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, the there was a, a violent, an armed carjacking. Yeah, that, that's a guy at gunpoint. That's a dangerous person. Yeah, and it was at a target, it was at a target in, the middle, in the middle of the day, yeah. right Christmas before the Christmas season. shopping season. There were, you know, probably hundreds of people there. Yeah. Um, so this was someone who obviously, and they didn't have any idea that this person was a juvenile. So, you know, they... They thought this person was a danger, obviously willing to uh, commit violent crimes right. with a gun in front of, you know, in the public. So there was that aspect. There and was then the, the other fact is it wasn't a chase like the entire time, right? We're talking from 117th Street all the way to Eddie Road, but it was the off-duty officer who saw the carjacking, followed the car all the way across town, and then... Once they got to Eddie Road, right, that's when he spotted the police officer and started to go fast, right? So it wasn't like this 100-mile chase all down 90 through downtown Cleveland. Right, okay. right. And that's, that's uh, and I believe the off-duty person was a supervisor as well. So that it would have been, so that creates another, um, you know, issue. And, and this, this whole case is, is, I mean, you have, another thing I forgot to mention earlier, 
another thing they're supposed to factor in is if they have a good chance of catching the person later. So if, if they can identify them now, mm. uh, you know, if they're trying to arrest someone on a warrant and they know who the driver is and they have like their license plate and all that stuff, they'll like, find them again. We can find them again. Like yeah. it's not worth the danger to do this when we can just look him up and go, you know, surveil him and, and surveil his house until he comes home. This was someone in a stolen car. So they had no idea who it was. Um, and this, I think is, this is, the poster case of like this is what the chase policy this is, is what for. the chase policy is for but also even when you follow it to a t from all from what we can tell you follow it to a t just the nature of a police chase in general whether or not it's you should be doing it or not still has the ability to but end ha- tragically but you have to be and careful cuz because when you go down that road you start to say the police caused the death, and the police didn't cause his death. The 15-year-old carjacker caused the death. I mean, the ki- they, they, they stole the car at gunpoint. They saw a police officer. They floored it, and they, they killed the little girl. a 15-year-old. So how good of a driver is a 15-year-old? Yeah. Right, exactly. And and But that's... I'm not trying to to blame the police for, for, for chasing this person, but I'm just... I it's it's just saying it's yeah. a police chase is inherently dangerous, it even is. if you follow everything mm-hmm. to a T and, and you. And that's why they're, they're so careful about it. And I think your story pointed that out. Correct. Um, so another story that had us talking about is about the death penalty. A study found out that our prosecutor O'Malley put more people on death row in two years than any other prosecutor in America. This one was kind of jaw dropping. Yeah. So this was uh, the Ohio uh, death penalty coalition. Uh, and Jeremy Pelzer actually did a good job with this story. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about gun violence and, uh, the crime in this County. And it turns out that five, I had five deaths or five Five death death penalty cases in two years. Um, it's like the juveniles though, right? And that the details do kind of matter. We published the details of the five files, the five cases, and these were all pretty horrendous. I mean, four of them involved multiple victims, and the last one was the, the horrendously awful torture case of Aliana DeFries. If you're going to have a death penalty, and we can debate whether or not we should, these cases do seem to be the ones that you would use the death penalty for, right? Multiple victims, torture, that, that kind of thing. So I guess the question comes down to, does Cuyahoga County nationally corner the market on horrendous, awful cases, or do other places just decide in cases like this not to seek it? Yeah, I think that's the question. I, I mean, I certainly think you know every year, yearly roundup or whatever of the the most violent cities in America, Cleveland's always you know top ten, sometimes even top five. Um, but I, I think. Um, you know, when you go back to the Bill Mason years, there he threw the dozens and dozens and dozens of indictments. Every case that was eligible, right. he brought it. And I think you know the criticism was that it was being used as a bargaining tool to get people to plead guilty. Right. And it was. There was. It's not. It, it's not a false criticism. If there was any way he could leverage the death penalty, he filed it. So much so that it became part of the campaign when he was replaced. The, the Tim McGinney came in and said, "I'm not going to do that." Correct. And, and I. So I. I don't. I don't see any. Any. Any idea or any trend that O'Malley is going back to that. Um, 
you know, I, I do think that he's he's taken a more aggressive stance than than Tim did. And and just looking, you know, I, I did a cursory search of some cases. Um, and there was a case in, in Columbus, uh, in Franklin County, uh, a guy shot and killed two police officers in, in outside of Columbus in a suburb. And the prosecutor there sought the death penalty, but the jury uh, rejected it and came back with a life without parole recommendation. And that's what ultimately what the uh, the killer was sentenced to. So um, we're more bloodthirsty in Cuyahoga County? I mean, that that's O'Malley's argument, that he he's brought it. The, there have been five death penalty trials, and five juries have come back with death recommendations um, under, under him. And um, so, you know, there, there's other issues about, yeah, I've heard some defense attorneys complain about the process of picking a jury in a death penalty case. You have to go through and only someone who's willing to impose the death penalty can be on the jury. Right. So you already start with a pool of people that yeah. are. It's not your peers. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, but, but I, 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 I think, you know, and, and this is kind of in line with the juveniles too. Mike has taken a more, um, you know, kind of tough on crime, traditional um, law enforcement stance and, and is not, you know, one of the progressive stalwarts that you see in like Philadelphia or like Chicago or, you know, places like that where, um, you know, they're really ad- using the prosecutor's office to advocate. Well, and you, ta- you just mentioned the Cleveland was, you know, is always on the list of, of homicide-heavy cities. And then you mentioned two other big cities that have crime problems. Do we know if in those places, so are they using less de- death penalty charges then for multiple victim cases? Has anybody looked at, we- at at the number of charges seeking the death penalty as opposed to the results? Uh, I haven't seen any study like that yet. Is Mike a big death penalty advocate? I don't think so. I mean, every time I've talked to him after one of these cases, he's, you know, kind of taken the tone of, you know, nobody, nobody's won here. This is, this is sad all around. And they are awful cases. I mean, when you are. read each of the five, it's like, man, oh man, these yeah. people are bad people. And I, I mean, I sat through five of all five of these trials you and, sat through the aliana de freeze right that was like yeah, one of the worst experiences you'll ever have in your life right and i was just there to listen to it and so like you know when you're the prosecutor and you're advocating for the victims and the families of the victims in mm-hmm. these cases uh i mean i'm sure that that has taken a toll and i can't imagine me having to be as close as I am to it, still as far removed from it as I am, it still is is a terrible thing to have to sit through. Right. Well, thanks for coming by, Corey. You gave us a lot to think about during the holiday break, and I'm glad we finally had a chance to talk about it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Next up, we'll talk with Mark Vosberg about how Cuyahoga County very quietly created a new $130,000 a year position at the end of 2019. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. Every Christmas season, it seems, some public official somewhere tries to escape notice on a news story by making a move on Christmas Eve or New Year's or something. This year, it was the administration of Kaga County Executive Armin Budish. On Christmas Eve, he posted a job for a public safety director, apparently thinking no one would notice. But Courtney, our, Courtney Ostolfi, our county reporter, noticed. What caught Courtney's eye? Well, two things. Uh, one, that was not a vacant job. It was held by Brandy Carney. The other is that Brandy was one of a core group of people who were 
uh, involved in fixing problems at the county jails. Mm -hmm. So um, that that raised the question: What happened to uh, Carney? And and if, so what happened? Right, and and so anyway, we um, we were wondering, and it, what it turned out to be was pretty sneaky. So what what was the sneaky move? Well, they um, created. It turns out they created a new position, a special operations chief. I believe is what they called it, um, and they moved Brandy into that with no public discussion, not even during the budget hearings where you would think it might have come up. Um, the new job was to oversee the money they've received in settlements uh, from opioid manufacturers. Um, anyway, they um, we had heard nothing about it, and it seemed rather odd. And one of the, the bad things about it is they were planning to use some of the opioid settlement to pay for it. Look, Courtney gets big points for catching all of this. I think it's pretty clear the county was hoping to get this one past her. I found it surprising that they would use the settlement cash to pay for the salary because they had spent so much time with us this fall guaranteeing that the settlement would be used exclusively for, for dealing with the crisis. And they never, they never said that might include some salaries. So every step of this not being transparent was surprising. It would have been so much smarter to just say, hey, we're creating this job, we wanna do this, and because the job will deal with opioids, we think it's okay to pay for it, be upfront. But by doing it the way they did, you know, it, it raised major questions. Right, it, it did. I, one of the reasons uh, for perhaps using the opioid settlement money was that they would not then have to go to county council and ask for more money for the job. Um, when we tracked down county council president Dan Brady, he told us that he had been told, at least he had been told, about the job, but not the plan to use um, settlement money for the uh, salary, which, by the way, it's $130,000. Uh, so Dan went to uh, uh, Armand Butish. They had a closed-door meeting, um, and at the end of it, Armand did an about face and said, we won't use settlement money. Um, we will take it out of the general fund. The bigger issue, though, is why they have this job at all. The opioid money is largely going to programs the county already has. It expands them, you know, more mental health stuff and more addiction treatment. So why can't the people overseeing those programs just handle the extra. Uh, the, the, the other thing that was alarming is the county started adding all sorts of other things to the job description. I guess it continues to be a moving target. Liaison to the governor's office on opioids, overseeing emergency operations center. Uh, does the county council get any say on this job that's not even in the budget? Well, uh, not really. The, the county charter, as Courtney laid out in a story this week, does give the county executive authority to create a job like this without public discussion um, or even in budget hearings. Apparently, it could just do it. Um, that doesn't make it right, but that's what happened. So the secrecy, that was almost guaranteed to conceal it if a reporter hadn't been paying attention. Um, do they have any idea or do we have any idea who's going to fill Brandy's old position? 
not yet. I mean, that was part of the job posting, so... Yeah, but I, is it one of those job postings that's like, we really want to find candidates, it, well, or it, we know we who we want? It, so it that could we be can, they have we a candidate in the wings. Yeah. Yes, but but, what, all right. what boggles my mind about this is that, that Budish, as a county executive, has done some very, very good things that he'll never see the benefit of. You know, he came into office, he, got, he put $10 million in county money up and got $13 million in private money to greatly expand pre-K part you know we had done the big series the first 2,000 days and now there's a tax increase on the ballot that could make that permanent you know untold numbers of children will get a much better start in life so that 20 years from now they might not be going to jail they might have good jobs and yet Buddhist won't be around to take the credit for that he did it he did a good thing he did the right thing with the arena it took a lot of flack for it but but if we didn't update the arena we'd have an outdated arena we would have a team that might be leaving he's doing things with the to create a diversion center so that people with mental illness are not going to the jail so he does these very good things, and then he does these stooge-like stupid things like trying to hide this kind of decision from us. And I just, it, over and over again, they're dopey. It was like when they introduced the tax increase, even though we spent weeks saying, when you introduce the tax increase, we want you to articulate how you'll spend it. And Courtney walks in, and they say, we know you want to know how we're going to spend the money. We're not going to tell you, which led to weeks of beating their heads in. And then finally, they said how they'll spend the money. I don't get it. I mean, they're doing so many things right. And the stuff they do wrong is so easy not to do. And yet they keep botching it. Right. And then expressing surprise when we slap them for it. So... Well, let's talk about another county issue that keeps floating up and probably had some problems with execution as well. Plastic shopping bags. Over the holidays, the county put out a news release to say that its ban on plastic bags is going into effect January 1st. That seemed kind of odd because county council voted before the holidays not to enforce it, but they said it's starting, it's here. Correct? Correct. So... So why? <laughs> well, why put out a press release saying it's starting when they're not enforcing it. Well, I mean, given their history of poor messaging, I, I think we can't rule out the possibility that someone sent that out, either not knowing that the <laughs> county council had given a six-month uh, moratorium or forgot about it. Uh, a more charitable uh, call would be that they were hoping to encourage voluntary um, compliance but well you know when when they put the release out and a couple of the tv stations went nuts on it like hey they're got they're, the bags right. are banned and i thought what are you doing but then i went to a home depot over the weekend and in cleveland heights and the plastic bags were gone it was paper bags and i thought okay so so there are some doing it but but i guess that's kind of rare huh laura well, um, I worked with Mary Kilpatrick on a story about this, and it was kind of confusing. We kind of sent her out to a bunch of different places, and we're like, just go see if there are plastic bags here. Um, and we kind of pulled our own staff. Pretty much only Giant Eagle is complying with the ban right now, although not in the cities that exempted themselves from the countywide ban. Others, like Target, are going about business as usual and don't plan to stop until the last minute, June 30th. Right. So... Anyway, Cleveland, now uh, Cleveland City Council has opted out uh, and uh, are going to spend six months, I guess, studying, studying the what they're going to do and then probably come up with some idea of their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's possibility they could opt back in, but reading between the lines, I think they'll come up with something 
different. I and don't know what. But. And they're just one of the right. cities that have opted right. out, right? We got Brooklyn. We got who Independence, else? North Olmstead, Strongsville is the latest. And like North Olmstead, it's a retail mecca. So those two cities alone have a huge number of stores that use plastic bags. They do. So, so do we basically have plastic bag detente now for six months? I mean, you said Cleveland will figure it out, and and then come midsummer, we'll we'll figure out what the true landscape will be with plastic bags here. Well, we could have state legislature uh, prohibit this. Prohibit yeah. So this. maybe so, that, I kind of was thinking so, that I was like, if Target's just kicking the can down for six months, are they just waiting for the state legislature to be like, just kidding, you're right, not allowed to do this? This could all be much do about nothing. Exactly. Although I feel like Giant Eagle is trying to position itself as like the environmentally friendly grocery store now, which I wouldn't have bet on a year ago. Um, so I, I do feel like there is some ability for some stores to come out and say, look, we're going to do the right thing regardless of what the messed up law says right now. So, But I think we're going to keep talking about this. We're going to have to see. So thank you for visiting, Mark. You bet. Thanks. In a moment, we'll hear from Bob Higgs about the plan to shrink Cleveland City Council. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Bob Higgs. Hello. We could have a pretty dramatic change coming to Cleveland City Government, Bob. A petition initiative will allow voters to decide whether to shrink the size of city council and to reduce their salaries. So let's start with the council size. Right now, you have 17 wards in Cleveland, each with a council member. They each have 22 to 25,000 residents. This proposal would shrink it to nine members, uh, which would mean redrawing all those wards and significantly change how the government works. I know you haven't finished the research, uh, but I but you're working on a story that looks at the history of the size of council, not from a numbers standpoint, but trying to get at what was the original purpose of council. I mean, there was a time before I came here when council had 33 members. It dropped to 21 for a long while, which is what it was when I was covering it. 17 now. Do you know how many council members there were when this form of government began and what this what the intended purpose of the council was at that time the form we have now was really enabled a hundred years ago plus when the state approved the home rule provisions in the charter the state constitution that allowed communities like cleveland to set up their own charter and create their own form of government and we flirted for about a decade with city manager in, in there. But essentially, when we have had this council mayor form, uh, they started right off the bat with 33 members. Uh, and the idea was uh, it's smaller units to give people greater access directly to their government through their council membership. There was a big debate in the teens when they set up the original charter over whether it should be a smaller panel with a broader sense of, of government or a bigger panel, which is what won the, the debate eventually. Okay, so so in, in the modern thinking on a council form of government is you have an administration run by an executive and, and they do all the services, they, they carry out the spending of the budget and it's 100% on them to do what residents need and that the council is the board of directors that sets policy, sets the budget, sets the priorities for the administration mm -hmm. to do. But it, but it sounds like that's not what it was intended at as Cleveland. And, and today, the you know council members all want to save their jobs, so they have a vested interest. But the people who are saying that this change is a mistake are arguing exactly what you just said, that, that 
the administration fails them regularly and their only access to a fix is through their council member. And, and each council member represents whatever it is, 17, 20,000 people. By reducing it, you're, you're ending effectively the form of government that has long served this city that these people need their individual council member to reach. And look, we know council members. Jay Westbrook used to drive around with a lawnmower in his car. Right. And a resident would say, there's high weeds next to me. The city won't come cut them. And Jay Westbrook would pull his lawnmower out and go cut the, cut the weeds down. You know, is that what your research is finding? Is that Cleveland city government is designed to make the council member what what the opponents to this say that they are the government representative that gets things done? It was intended to be the advocate for the residents. It doesn't replace the executive branch functions of carrying out the services themselves, but it was it it gave you a voice you could go to if you if you called in you got potholes in your street that are breaking your car wheels uh, and you're having trouble getting anything by calling city hall you had an advocate you could enlist you could come over look at your potholes it goes down to city hall and raises hell with the administration so by that and measure that, this is a bad idea this, yes. this this move by the group that put it together is really trying to contravene Cleveland's intended form of government. And frankly, you could argue that reducing it from 33 to 21 to 17 but did the same thing. Could you argue that 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 idea of having an advocate form of government is outdated in an era where you can go online and report your pothole but, because this was formed more than 100 years ago? But if you talk to residents of Cleveland, that doesn't work. That, we, well, maybe I, we should fix that problem. Well, that, that's <laughs> the thing you say is, should you fix the administration? Should, but their answer is, look, man, I got high weeds next to my yard. None of that stuff works. I can't change the administration. But when I call my council person, they get it done. Because then you have someone with official standing who's going in. And, and who, who also has... depends on your vote. And has the bully pulpit also at the council meetings to stand up uh, and complain on council floor or when the administration comes to the table at, say, finance committee to get legislation passed. Frequently, you'll see members of council say, let's talk about this for a second first. This, this comes down to what Laura just said is the grand philosophy of government. We should fix the government so that it works as intended. For the Cleveland resident, this is pragmatism. Yeah, you know, yeah, great. Right. Fix that government. That hasn't happened my whole life. But the one thing I know is if I call Mike Polensic, if I call Dona Brady, if I call Joe Jones, they do what I need them to do. And so I don't want to change that. Right. And they call you back. There are members of council where even if you don't live in their wards, they call you back. They return every phone call. Even reporters? Yes. Yeah, actually, there's a, there's a few so, people look, that are go-to. They'll call you the, back. And look, this is by no means an endorsement of the current council. There are council members that don't get things done, that people are very frustrated with. But it seems like it's easier to replace a council member than it is to change over the administration. Right. You know, we've had the same mayor now for 14 years. So the other half of this is the pay issue. And the voters are going to, to get a say in that, correct? Right, right. It would slash pay. Uh, pay now is a, is a bit over eighty three thousand a year. They would cut it to fifty eight thousand a year, and what, it would limit how they can change it too. What few people know, I expect, is how the council pulled a weasel move twenty years ago mm -hmm. to get it to where it is. I was back covering it back in those years, and the way they did it 
was to set in automatic annual increases or biannual increases. I can't remember if it was one or two years that didn't require any more votes. Like they voted once and it had this automatic accelerator that went on forever. It raised it by tens of thousands of dollars um, with no, with nobody ever getting a chance to question it. And nobody ever had to put their name on the line to say, I'm raising it. So they all benefited from these enormous raises way out of proportion to what, what Cleveland employees were getting. This would punch it back down to where it was before that. Does the change set up how council would get raises in the future? They would have to do it. Uh, it would be limited to no more than 3% at a time. Uh, they could only do it in even-numbered years, so they couldn't do it in a year where there's an election, and it could only be for a subsequent term. Okay. So Council President Kevin Kelly says reducing the salary will make it harder to find qualified council candidates. Do people run for the council for the pay or to do public service? Is there any job, um, any push to make the jobs part-time? I haven't heard any push to make them part-time, and that gets back to that, having your local advocate, mm-hmm. that idea. E- you know, even in when they had 33 members, I mean, Cleveland's population picked a, peaked about 1950. The ratio was still only about 25,000 residents per member of council. Okay. Uh, so that that's really in there. Uh, the, they argue. I mean, one of their arguments is they have more constituents that they're responsible for than many suburban mayors. There's, because because what, right. is the, what is the number that There's each ward has? There's eight communities in Cuyahoga County that have more residents than one Cleveland ward does. And wh- what does each ward have now? About 22, but right around there. But those are responsible for, like, running a fire department and the right. public works and all of those things that these council members are just supposed to, I guess, advocate to get their s- services for their people. It's not like they're running the police no, department. No, they aren't, they aren't the executive. Right. They're the, they're the go-between. Um, So let's talk about another city issue. The Federal Transportation Security Administration is investigating another security issue at the airport. What is up with that? The the details are are somewhat sketchy in that TSA won't lay it out, Mm -hmm. and neither will the city. Uh, But it involves a deputy commissioner named Eric Turner, uh, who apparently went through a gate on the outside with somebody with him. Uh, through into a secure area it's they they classify this as a, a controlled access violation as opposed to a security breach where someone went through security through okay uh, and and so they're digging into that now and they're also digging in to everything related to that as so, part of the investigation so this is kind of amazing because Fred Zabo got a ton of publicity over something similar. He was the poobah at the airport who helped a key member of Frank Jackson's cabinet avoid the screeners and get on a plane. Fred ended up losing his security clearance and his airport position because no longer had the clearance. And the TSA was furious with how long it took the city to report it. They were. They were. They sent at one point a really nasty letter to the city. They wanted Zabo's credentials revoked forever. Because he had done stuff like this in the past. It just hadn't gotten as much attention. And they reminded him, you know, we can find you for every one of these incidents. And there's like five things here we could find you 
$30,000 a piece for if we had to and make your lives miserable. They, they were really angry about that and about how long it took to report it. And the reason they care about the length of time is, is if, if somebody gets on a plane who's not screened and they find out before that plane lands, they can meet that person at the destination airport, mm-hmm. stop them, check out what they had. But the minute that person lands and deplanes and goes elsewhere in the airport, the whole system is at risk because you don't know where they're going next necessarily. So they're, they're pretty angry. So it's kind of surprising, given all of the publicity and all of the angst about what happened last time, that somebody would do it. Now, again, this is different because they went behind the secure line, then they came back out right, went through the screening. Right. But it doesn't matter. Once you're behind the line, you know, you could, you could put a grenade in a bag. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're there. I just, it's kind of shocking that the culture out there hasn't figured this out. I, I think that's the thing that's most surprising is that it is, from what I understand of this, this was so completely avoidable, and yet it happens. And it's like after last year in the blow up, why would you even think about doing something like this? Okay. Finally, Bob, another story. Cleveland's EMS workers are unhappy. Can you tell us why? They are upset because they want a better mental health services in their contract that they're arguing with the city over. Uh, They went through some arbitration and they want an arbitrator's ruling, but the city is still not budging. They took that to court and now they may appeal uh, common pleas judgment against them and continue to fight the arbitrator, have it set aside. Doesn't the city negotiate all these union contracts in parallel, meaning everybody kind of gets the same thing? Uh, Why is it that only EMS is fighting on this one? They do negotiate them in parallel. And my understanding is that basically they've been offered the same thing that the cops get and that the fire get. But what they're arguing is we see more trauma on a regular basis and we want some enhanced services. Mm. Thanks for your time, Bob. I'm glad to. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Rich Exner. Thanks for having me. Rich, we've long worked with the Community Research Institute at Baldwin-Wallace University, which has been making a pretty big name for itself with, with its form of politics polling. For some years now, they've done Ohio polls in key election years, but this year they're expanding to some neighboring states. Which ones and why? To Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and it makes a lot of sense. I kind of forgot some of this uh, until I looked back after talking to people at BW. Each of those states flipped from uh, Democrat to Republican last time by one percentage point each. So they really decide the election. At Cleveland.com, we have a lot in common with BW. We started our flyover newsletter covering the politics of a bunch of Midwestern states with the same thoughts. These are the states that decided the 2016 presidential election. So do you think we're going to find opinions varying very much between Ohio and the three others? I think you'll see some differing opinions, but I mean, what we have in common, we were all once industrial states, and a lot of the elections were were driven by um, blue-collar union workers that in the past had gone heavily Republican, and that kind of switched last time. But what's a little bit different about Ohio than these states? If you think about Wisconsin, it's it's a lot Milwaukee and the rest of the state. You think about Michigan, it's the Detroit area and the rest of the state. And even Pennsylvania, it's Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and then the whole rest of the state's a little different. We have a lot of urban areas and a lot of different type of rural areas in Ohio. So in that way, we're a little bit different. So you've seen the survey questions. What are some of the issues that most interest you? I, I'm, I'm most interested in finding out why 
Ohio became much more Republican last time than these other states that in a lot of ways, as you mentioned earlier, are similar. Um, you know, they, they edged Republican enough to throw the election Ohio, which was basically a toss-up. If you look at the, um, the four previous elections, it's almost exactly 50-50. Went eight percentage points for Trump. So for some reason, we moved in one direction a lot more than the other states. And, and so a lot of the questions they're going to be asking uh, on issues such as immigration or, or um, you know, uh, jobs and so forth— uh, we'll, we'll help, you know, tell that story, but I'm interested to in see how Ohio differs and maybe why. Mm. Well, it's interesting because in the next statewide election where people voted, Sherrod Brown won by uh, almost the same margin. What makes the Baldwin Law surveys more accurate, I guess, is that they are not your normal random sample. Baldwin-Wallace begins with a panel of pre-screened people and then makes sure it's all adjusted to be representation, representational of geography and demographics and things. You pour over these surveys as they come out. Have you found them to be reliable? Yeah, there, there's plenty of bad surveys out there, but when it comes to BW, my experience is that they generally seem to be as good as the uh, reputable surveys you might hear from, from Gallup or, or Quinnipiac and these type of things because they use scientific, accepted scientific methods to get a fair panel, make, checking to make sure they got the right number of men and women and people in different uh, age groups and so forth. And, and generally, they, they follow, uh, when there are polls taken at the same time, they follow the, some of the most reputable ones that you see anywhere. So, so I think they're solid. It seems like every time um, a BW does something, there's some critics that will pop up. Uh, you know, about polls, people don't like it if they don't say what they think should be said, is that they'll point to a, 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 a poll that they did in early October before the last presidential election in which they had uh, Clinton up by some, almost nine points over Trump. But, but what the critics failed to point out is in that same poll that was something like 10 or 12 percent were still undecided, and that poll was taken a month before the election. It might have been right on the money at that point for the people it reached. Yeah, we, we deal with them a lot, Tom Sutton and Lauren Copeland, and, and it's really been a pleasure because they are so focused on getting it right and it, it's always a good conversation we end up meeting with them i don't know two three times a year and it's always a uh, kind of a, a good thing going forward so when are we going to see these first results well uh, believe it or not the iowa caucuses are just around the corner february 3rd and they're promising oh, this polling that that's just getting started now will be that we'll see the results before that all right on a separate note you had good news for Cuyahoga county homeowners this week yeah, and, and both the uh, suburbs and the city, uh, home prices were up again last year. I guess that's good news if you want to sell, not necessarily if you, you're in a buyer's market. But, <laughs> True. but m m if you're selling or you want to see your investment rise, it was another good year for, for this market. They were up uh, better than 6%, whether you look at the suburbs or the city, over the previous year. And the increases were nearly everywhere across the county. Although if you're in the market, uh, Rich also had a story recently that showed if you buy in the winter, you save thousands and thousands of dollars. So could be a good time for a buyer, too. <laughs> You've been tracking these a long while. We're way up over the post-recession slump, right? I, I guess I wouldn't say way up, but we're finally comfortably ahead of those pre-recession levels. And, and back in 2007, the median house selling price in the suburbs was 138000 Last year, it got up to 149000 So in, in fact, until last year, uh, or until 2018, we were still below 17, so we edged above it uh, last year. Now we're $10,000, $11,000 above now uh, where we were in seven. Uh, but it, it, it was a long haul back, but it, it's gotten there. So are there anywhere that house sales are dropping? Yeah, uh, places like uh, Shaker Heights and Bay Village dropped some, but I would hesitate to say that that's necessarily uh, indicative of something bad going on because I found six towns in, in the county that the prices dropped last year. 
but the previous year they were up. So it's not like it's a long-term trend and so forth. And sometimes when you go up, it's tough to stay at that level, or maybe it's a little quirky how high you got. And these are sales, right? So it depends on which houses are selling, not well, value. Yeah, we're looking at just what houses are selling. Um, you know, separately each, each time when the new values come out, we take a look at that. And of course, there's the argument of whether the values were right or not. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. Your numbers are always interesting. So we'll skip talking to you about the Ohio State loss to Clemson. Don't you dare. It's, up, it's, it's upsetting when the better soon. team loses. <laughs> well, when the ref steals the game. Uh, speaking of football, let's talk Browns. Sports editor Dave Campbell will close out the podcast today in a moment with an update on the coaching search. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I cannot believe we are immersed yet again in another Browns coaching search. It feels like we do this every year, and then every year the team is awful. So what's going on this year? Well, it seems like there's been a real yo-yo going on in Berea the last several years. There's been so many coaches and so many GMs, and I think Jimmy Haslam and D. Haslam, the owners, just decided that like this, they decided last year to bring in John Dorsey, let him run things, and after one year they just decided this is not working. There were too many things going wrong. It was dysfunctional. They underachieved. And they just figured they would cut their losses and start over. And the big word out in Berea that Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, has been reporting on is alignment. They are looking for people who think alike and can work together. Okay, so they're not the only NFL team that fired their coach when the season ended. But all those other teams have hired new coaches. What are the Browns waiting for? Yeah, a lot of fans were kind of wondering like why it's taking so long, but th there were some really odd circumstances. The Redskins hired Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera got fired early, middle of the season. The Redskins fired their coach in the middle of the season, so they were both waiting there. They didn't have the same timetable as the Browns. The Cowboys is like the best job in the minds of a lot of coaches. Many people dream of coaching the Cowboys. It's like the Lakers or the Yankees, and when Mike McCarthy, the former Packers coach, He's been sitting out for a year. The Cowboys liked him, and they just moved on it, and he wanted that job. So the Browns weren't really – they were involved with McCarthy, but he wasn't somebody that they could get because the Cowboys is such a premier job. Um, that left three left, the Panthers, the Giants, and the Browns. The Panthers hired Matt Rule, the coach from Baylor. The Giants, kind of out of the blue, hired a guy named Joe Judge, who's the Patriots special teams coach. And that was good for the Browns because these seven guys that the Browns have been interviewing are all on the board. So, and they all and don't have another chance and, at a and job. And they're the only team that has a, an opening left. So they're still going to get the pick of who they want even after all this time. So there's nobody's going to like criticize them for dawdling at this point. I don't think so. I, none of these guys that they had on their uh, that they have on their board have been taken off the board. They didn't lose out on anybody by waiting. And they're, they're all about process. Uh, Paul D. Podesta is their strategy officer, their chief strategy officer, and he's like, "We're going to follow the process and do this using the data, and we're going to carry it through." So who are the candidates? Well, there's seven of them. I don't want to. I guess I could run through all of them. Kevin Stefanski from the Vikings, Eric Bieniemy from the Chiefs, Brian Dable from the Bills, Josh McDaniels, who's got a long history. He's actually from Canton, um, from the Patriots. Greg Roman is the Ravens' offensive coordinator. Robert Sala is the 49ers' defensive coordinator, coordinator, and then Jim Schwartz is the Eagles' defensive coordinator. Jim Schwartz actually worked for Bill Belichick here when Belichick was the coach of the Browns, and Jim Schwartz actually was a college football teammate at Georgetown of Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. Um, All right. We had some stuff the other day, so that's kind of an interesting tidbit on him. All right, you're the sports manager, so we're going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Two questions. Who should it be, and who will it be? All right, so I have no guess. I, I don't want to say who it should be because I haven't been doing the reporting like our Browns team with Mary Kay Cabot and everybody else, so, but I, I, who I think it will be is Kevin Stefanski. 
And he was a finalist last year and didn't get the job because the Haslam's let John Dorsey pick Freddie Kitchens. But Kevin Stefanski is known as one of the most creative play callers in the NFL. He's gotten the Vikings in, you know, into the second round of the playoffs. He called a brilliant game last week when they beat New Orleans. He's very analytics-minded and very creative play caller. People really like what he does in terms of structuring the offense. And if he took the talent on the Browns, he could do some pretty fun things with it. So... I think it's going to be him, but I'm just basing that on a guess. <laughs> so what I find so frustrating is the repetition of the cycle. The Freddie Kitchens results seemed inevitable. He had never coached, and they had options for people who had. Why did they go with such an unproven guy, and why should we trust the organization at this point to get it right? They never have. Yeah, and the big complaint early on when the Haslam's bought the team was like they're meddling too much, they're getting in the way. And finally, when John Dorsey came aboard, they're like, hey, we have a guy we trust. We're going to get out of the way. Well, the guy that they gave the power to picked a, a, the wrong coach. Mm -hmm. So I know Browns fans are like, why do, Why should they get it right this time? I, the only thing I can think of is like the law of averages. And Jimmy Haslam <laughs> even admitted this. Like, we're doing this a lot, but because we're doing it a lot, we're getting better at it. And we think we have the right idea this time. So that's, I mean, Jimmy Haslam admits that he's made a lot of mistakes but he feels like they've done this enough that they've got it this time. So Such we shall see. Such a Cleveland refrain, like, there's yeah. always next year. There's always next year, right. All right, I hope you're right. Long-suffering Browns fans deserve a winning season. Well, we'll see what happens, and um, which should be wrapped up in the next couple of days. Okay, Laura, it's just you and me to wrap this up. Good conversations today. I'm still scratching my head over Budish creating that new job. Like I said earlier, he's done a lot of good things, but... <laughs> this just makes the ridiculously stupid move to be secretive and guaranteed to bring criticism. Never really seen anything like it. A politician who is, has his heart in the right place, but keeps making stooge decisions. Oh, for me, I know I've said this before, but I am still fascinated by this plastic bag saga. All this pushback against a move to help the environment. It'll be really interesting to see if there's anything left of the ban by June. I think the shrinking of city council is interesting just because of that debate about the purpose of council. If you believe that the purpose of council is your avenue into city hall, then this is a bad thing. If you, if you believe it's the board of directors and that you should have direct access through the administration, it's a good thing. I wonder whether residents will fear losing the representation. Maybe they just cut back their pay. Well, we'll know soon. The election is on St. Patrick's Day, which is going to be interesting. Yeah, it's a very short period of time for people to debate that. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks to Corey, Mark, Bob, Rich, and Dave for talking with us. And thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. Laura and I will be back next week with another episode. Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm -hmm.